Andrew Womack Ministries presents this message titled, Foundations of Grace. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. Tonight I'm going to do something uh, I haven't exactly done before. This You're going to have to listen fast because, boy, I'm going to talk fast. I'm going to cover a huge amount of uh, material, but uh, I just felt like the Lord was impressing on me just to share about how much God loves us, and there's a thousand ways that you can do that, but specifically, I want to share about our salvation, not only, you know, what we were saved from. Most people know that we were saved from sin, that we were saved from hell, but the method of salvation is as important as anything else. Because, you know, we use phrases like, well, if you come to the Lord, the Lord will give you a brand new start. You can start all over again. That is not really descriptive of salvation at all. If all the Lord was, did was give me a brand new start or a brand new beginning, did you know that I am no more capable after salvation of making a new start any better than my first start? Amen. I mean, if all the Lord did was give you a brand new beginning, a brand new start, you'd blow the whole thing. You'd ruin the second one just as much as you ruined the first one. Some of you aren't aware of that. And you say, oh no, I'd do better. Well, you might do better, but I mean, uh, God doesn't grade on a curve. It's not, you know... Uh, if you do better than somebody else. You've either got to be perfect is what the Lord demands. He's demanding perfection or He's demanding your faith in a Savior who is perfect for you. So it's not really accurate to say that God gives us a new start or a new beginning because what that does, that puts the burden of salvation upon you. Maybe you get born again by faith in the Lord Jesus, but then after you're born again, the burden of maintaining that salvation and keeping your relationship with the Lord good falls on your shoulder. And some of you are looking at me like, well, brother, isn't that true? No, that's not true. This is one of the biggest deceptions, I believe, in the body of Christ today. And that is that somehow or another we get saved by grace. God just has mercy on us, and so He offers salvation to us as a gift. But once you get saved, you're going to have to perform if you want to receive anything from God. Wrong, wrong, wrong. That's wrong thinking. That is not the way that God deals with us. And some of you have already gone tilt, and I'm just into the introduction part. <laughs> But I really believe that this is critical that we understand this because in my own personal life, I was born again when I was eight years old. And I never have said a cuss word in all of my life. I've never taken a drink of liquor in all of my life. I never smoked a cigarette in all of my life. I lived a totally holy life according to man's standards. You would think that I lived happily ever after, but it wasn't so. You know why? Because I was trusting in my goodness. I was trusting in my holiness. And as a result, I was what I call saved and stuck. I didn't have any doubt that I wouldn't go to heaven if I was to die, but I didn't have any power, any joy, any peace of God in my life. I was frustrated to the max. I used to be ashamed of my testimony because, uh, you know, I, didn't, I hadn't gone out and murdered anybody or killed anybody or something. And I thought, well, what have I got to offer people? And I finally came to realize that the average person hasn't gone out and murdered somebody or done these terrible things. The average person is just a nice person who's headed to hell. And then, after you get born again, the average Christian's testimony is that you're a nice person who's frustrated. You're trying to do your best, but you really don't have confidence that God loves you, that God will move in your life. And the average Christian is frustrated, believing that God loves them to the degree that He won't send you to hell, but still, you don't believe God loves you intimately so that you can enjoy the real blessings of God. 
The average Christian looks like here's uh, clergy and laity. The clergy is close to God. God really answers their prayers. They know God, but the average Christian doesn't enter into those kind of things. And that is just totally because of the way that we've been taught. Wrong thinking. The truth is that, man, God loves you as intimately as He loves anybody. And the only thing that's keeping you from experiencing an intimate relationship with God, where, I mean, God is real in your life and moving, is the wrong thinking that we've got. God is not withholding any of His blessings from you. God isn't withholding healing. He's not withholding uh, prosperity. He's not withholding the power and the anointing of God. The only thing that's stopping the power of God from operating in you is right here in your brain. 99.9% .9 of all spiritual warfare is between your ears. Amen? We're out here blaming the devil and rebuking the devil and fighting the devil. And the problem is, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Right here is where our problem is. We aren't thinking straight. We don't really understand the way that God has moved in our life. And I'm basing this on what happened to me, but uh, that was in 1968. Uh, when I begin to start learning some of these things, but I, as I travel and minister, I find this consistent with everybody, that very few people apart from a real revelation of God have a good understanding about the grace of God and about the mercy of God. We believe that God moves in our life proportional to how holy we are, and that's wrong. You'll hear a lot of people preach holiness. Man, if you aren't holy, God won't use you. That's wrong. If God used holiness, if holiness was a requirement for God to use you, none of you would ever get used. Oh, well, brother. Now, wait a minute. I'm not perfect, but at least I don't dip or cuss or chew or go with those that do, praise God. At least I'm better than this old publican over here. I fast twice in a week. I pay tithes of mint and anise and cumin. And see, what we begin to do is start comparing ourselves like the Pharisees. The truth is... That if you miss heaven by an inch, or if you miss holiness by an inch, you miss it by a mile. James chapter 2 verse 10 says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so... Excuse me, that's Colossians 2, 6. That's a good one. I'll probably get to that before the night's over. Amen. But James chapter 2 verse 10 says, If you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of all. That means that if you do everything right and miss it in one single thing, you're guilty of them all. Well, I hope I'm popping somebody's bubble. There are some of you that are trying so hard to be holy enough and thinking, God, is it good enough now? Will you move in my life? Now can I experience your love? Am I holy enough now to be healed? Am I good enough now that you'll use me, etc.? That's the attitude that most people have. They're trying to be good enough so that God will answer their prayers and move in their life. I'm telling you that if you do everything right and only miss it in one tiny area, you become guilty of everything. Even though I've never said a cuss word, never taken a drink of liquor, never done all of these things, I'm guilty of murder, adultery, homosexuality, because I broke the law of God. It's just like if you had a huge glass across the front of this auditorium. It wouldn't matter if you shot a BB through it or ran a truck through it. It doesn't matter the size of the hole that you make. If you break a piece of glass, the whole thing's broken. Some of you are saying, Brother... If this is true, then how could God ever accept any of us? If that's true, I just can't believe God's that way. Well, that is the I wish I had time to teach on all this. I'm trying to get to another thing, all right? This is just along the way to where we're going. But some of you are saying, if that's true, how could God ever accept any of us? Well, see, He did something that will work for everybody. And that is that He sent Jesus to this earth, and Jesus 
purchased everything that you ever need from God. Everything that you needed to be holy enough to get, Jesus got it for you and He gives it to you as a gift and all He says that you have to do is just believe and receive. It's not based on your holiness. Your holiness doesn't move God. Jesus' holiness is the only one that moves God. Jesus is the only one that was ever good enough to receive anything from God. Some people say, well, now, brother, I agree with that totally when it comes to the initial born-again experience. But after you get born again, you've got to start straightening your life up. Well, Colossians 2.6, that's the one I started to quote a while ago. It says, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. That means the same way as you got saved is the same way you continue to be saved. If you got saved by totally putting faith in a Savior and it wasn't your goodness, your goodness didn't add anything to it. You didn't have anything to contribute to salvation except your sin. And then you put faith in Jesus. If that's the way you got born again, that's the way you receive from God. It's not your goodness. It's not your holiness that moves God. God isn't moved by your holiness or lack thereof. Holiness does not make God love you more, nor does it make God answer your prayers better, nor does it make God love you more, any of these things. But a lack of holiness will make you love God less. A lack of holiness will give Satan an inroad into your life. So yes, there's a reason for living holy, but not so that God can accept you and move in your life. Thanks for that thunderous silence. <laughs> You know, what I'm saying is basically the whole point of Paul writing the book of Romans. Let's turn over there. And what I'm going to try and do, this is really ambitious. I'm going to try and uh, give you a thumbnail sketch of Romans 1 through 8. And uh, I probably won't do it all tonight. And it'll be a miracle if I get it all done by tomorrow night. But we'll at least get started. Because see, the book of Romans, this is what it's dealing with. The book of Romans was written to a religious person. This was written to Christians. This was not written to unbelievers. And it was written to Christians in Rome who had been born again through hearing the gospel from other people. But Paul had not ministered there personally. And the people had had other teachers come through who were preaching. And the main thing they were preaching, there were, there were other things. But the main thing they were preaching was that you had to be circumcised according to the Old Testament law to be born again. And of course, Paul so conclusively disproved that, that today circumcision isn't an issue in the church. But we've got the same legalistic thinking. We've got the same mentality. In other words, circumcision was the issue back then. Today, some people preach that you have to be water baptized or you can't be saved. Or you have to do this or do that before you can be saved. It's the same principle. It's down the same road, same destination. They just change cars. Amen. Just vehicles. They're using, they're talking about something else. So Paul was dealing with this legalistic mentality that it took not only faith in the Lord, but you also had to do certain things. You had to be right about certain things or God couldn't accept you. This mentality is prevalent in the body of Christ today. I'd say that the vast majority of the body of Christ still has the same mentality that the book of Romans was written against. The book of Romans has literally changed the history of the world. It's what sparked the Reformation. Martin Luther got a revelation of Romans chapter 1 through 8 and it caused the Reformation and you and I are born again today basically through the spark that was ignited through Martin Luther. This is powerful. If you ever get hold of these scriptures, it'll transform your life. Also, this is a spinoff, but if you ever get hold of the teaching of grace here and understand how God relates to you, it'll keep you from error. All error will lead you away from faith in Jesus as the only source 
You can't get into error looking to Jesus as the sole source of your salvation. It, you can't get into error doing that. There's no way to err in that. To be in error, to come into heresy, wrong doctrine, whatever, you have to get away from putting faith in Jesus. Everything else is useless if Satan can't turn you away from saying, Jesus is my righteousness. Jesus is my only justification between me and God. A person that has their faith in the Lord like that, they can't be led into error. Amen? Your whole focus is on Jesus. He's the author and the finisher of your faith. So the book of Romans is super powerful. And uh, boy, I've got, I've got about two or three hours worth of teaching on each one of these chapters. So this is going to be a miracle if we get through here. But I want you to stick with me. We're going to cover as much as we can. The book of Romans, first few chapters are introduction. There are some powerful things. I mean, the first few verses uh, in the first chapter are powerful things that are said. But let's skip down to verse 16. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The just shall live by faith. Paul here was saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now today, see, we say things like that and it goes right over most people's head because the word gospel doesn't mean much to us. We use the word gospel synonymous with religion. Anything that's religious is, has to do with the gospel. <laughs> not so. I'd say that the vast majority of things that are called religious today have nothing to do with the gospel. They're anti-gospel. They're against the gospel. The word gospel specifies specifically the method of salvation. Now see, these people were believing in salvation. They were still believing in God and they were still proclaiming that they were saved, but there was an argument going on in the church about what do you have to do to be saved? Some were saying, well, it's all through Jesus. If I believe and receive Jesus, I'm born again. And others were saying, no, sir, you've got to put some action to it. You've got to be holy. If you don't do this, if you aren't circumcised, if you don't keep the law, if you don't observe certain days, if you don't eat certain meats and other things, you can't truly be born again. So the term gospel refers not to just whether or not God, there is a God and whether or not God saves, but it refers to the method of salvation. And just because of time, I'm going to quote some things to you, so you need to write this down or something and go back and verify it. But in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, you'll find that Paul said, I am testifying the gospel of the grace of God. He used the term gospel and grace interchangeably. Also in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he talked about if anybody moves you away from the gospel of grace... Grace and gospel are interchangeable. The gospel is referring to the method of salvation. You're saved by God's grace. And the only thing you have to contribute to it is faith, not your performance, not your holiness. It's not you meeting some minimum standard and then Jesus making up the difference. Boy, that is a wrong concept. And you'll hear people say that often. That you have to hit some minimum standard. You've got to at least do this and then Jesus makes up the difference. No, Jesus is everything. Not only for the initial born-again experience, but for everything you receive from God. It's all by faith in what He's done. Your actions have zip, zero, zilch to do with God moving in your life. Now, that needs more explanation, but I can't give it to you at the moment, amen. But as far as God's looking at you, God doesn't look at your performance and move in your life proportional to your performance. God totally ignores your performance. The only thing He's looking at is, do you believe? Will you receive through what Jesus has done for you? That is the only thing. Well, that's pivotal. 
Some of you are looking at me like, well, what's the difference? Who cares? Well, it's really important because see, if Satan can make you think that you've got to live up to some standard, you've got to be holy. Unless you do this, God won't move in your life. Once you adopt that mentality, it's just a matter of time till Satan condemns you and makes you think, sure, God's alive, God's real, God will move, but not for you. And that's what's happening. The people that are here in this church tonight, you're, this is a Friday night. It's party night for most people. The reason you're here is because you believe in God. I mean, you came here expecting to receive something from God. And you didn't go down to the first church of the Frigidaire. You're here at a... Friday night at a full gospel church or whatever you call this, amen, because you believe that God's a miracle worker and that God does miracles. Probably every person. There may be somebody that got drug in here against your will, but the vast majority of you believe that God is a miracle worker and you believe in supernatural power of God, you'd fight somebody for it. Man, I believe God does all of these great things. If I was to tell you about miracles that I've seen, I've seen people raised from the dead. I've seen numbers of people raised from the dead. I've got a testimony in our newsletter about a person raised from the dead. And in our September newsletter, there was a man that was dead for 45 minutes in one of my meetings. He died in the middle of my meeting. It was one of the rudest things anybody ever did in one of my meetings. Kansas City nearly ruined the meeting. And I had them drag him out in the hall and I just kept preaching. I said, well, you go out there and pray for him. I had the pastor and some other people go pray for him, and his wife was praying for him. And I said, man, I'm right in the middle of something. I just kept preaching. He was dead for 45 minutes, and then he came back into his body. He's a good friend of mine. I stay with him every time I'm in Kansas City. That's been, I think, 12 years ago, and great things happen. I know, I know personally people who have raised someone from the dead or people who have been raised from the dead, 38 of them. And there's only eight people raised from the dead in all of the Bible, and that's including Jesus. Man, we're singing about revival. There's revival. We're living in revival. God's doing great things. Now, see, if I tell you about that, most of you, amen, brother, you not only believe God can do it, but you believe I can do it. You know, most of you aren't going to call me a liar if I say I saw people raised from the dead. You'd say amen. But if somebody came forward tonight for prayer, and if I started to pray for them, and they fell over dead... And if I said, all right, how many of you believe God not only can raise from the dead, but he will raise from the dead tonight? We'd lose some of you, but you know, probably still the majority of you would say, hey man, brother, pray for him. And you'd get up here where you could see it. You want to see this. You'd get excited. But you know where I'd lose 99.9% .9 of you? I'd say, all right, if you believe it, you come up here and pray for him. <laughs> now see, there's a lot of you that believe God can do it. You believe I can do it. You don't doubt that things like that happen today, but when it comes down to you doing it, all of a sudden, faith is replaced by fear. You know why? You know why you believe God would do it through me more than you do through you? It's because you know you better than you know me. If you knew me as well as you know you, you wouldn't have any more faith in my prayers than you got in your prayers. Amen? That's the truth. You think preachers somehow or another got it all together, but that's not so, is it? Ask the wives. <laughs> Amen. No, the truth is, see, you get up here and you get to seeing me in my suit and you, you see me on my best behavior and all of this, and so you think good on me and stuff, but you know you. You know all of the rotten things and you know why it is that you can't release your faith then because you've got this concept, God wouldn't use a dirty vessel. 
God won't use me. God only uses people that have their act together. If you see somebody move in the power of the Holy Spirit, the first thing you start doing is, why did God do that for them? We start looking and trying to figure out what it is that they did to get God to do it. That whole mentality is wrong. God doesn't move in your life based on your goodness or what you do. It's all based on your faith. And sometimes people whose lives are in a mess can release their faith better than a person that's got their life in order. You know why? Because they know they need a Savior. <laughs> they say, Jesus, help! That's the reason the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, 26 through 30, He says, God didn't choose very many mighty, very many noble people, but He chose weak things of the world, base things of the world, things that are despised and things that are nothing to bring to naught things that are so that no flesh would glory in His presence. The reason you don't find a whole bunch of real educated people that have everything together being the ones that are mightily used in the ministry is because those people don't realize they need help. They're comparing themselves among themselves and they're thinking, God, you just get me introduced, get me to the stage, draw the people and I'll handle it from here. God doesn't use that kind. But you take somebody who's a hick, somebody that doesn't know what, which ends up, somebody who's a total failure and man, God calls you to preach and you say, God, me? And man, terror fills your heart. And you, I was such an introvert, I couldn't look at a person in the face and talk to them. I mean, I was messed up. And yet God's put me on radio and ministering to people and doing things. And all of a sudden, say, I know, God, it can't be me. I need help. And he says, good. You're the kind I could use. Amen. If you're nothing, you qualify. Praise God. But see, if you don't understand what we're talking about, then what happens is you get to thinking, oh, God's going to use me because I've fasted, because I've prayed. It doesn't matter how much you fast or how much you pray, you could have always done more. And Satan, as long as you've got that mentality, he'll just keep probing until he finds a flaw in you someplace. All of us are missing it. All of us are blowing it to some degree or another. It's impossible that you get beyond the ability to sin, to fall short. The Bible says that you're supposed to love your wife as Christ loved the church. There's not a man in here that does that. Every moment of every day, you could confess that is sin, that God, I don't love my wife as Christ loved the church. The Bible says that the wife is supposed to reverence her husband as the church reverences Christ. There's not a woman in here that does that. All of you could confess guilt over that every moment of every day. None of us have obtained yet. Paul, after all those years, said in Philippians chapter 3, I count not myself to have apparent uh, of, what was it? Attained or whatever, apprehended or whatever. He says, I'm just still pressing on towards the mark. Paul still hadn't obtained. None of, so see, if you got this mentality of, oh, I'm going to get my act together, I'm going to be holy, I'm going to pray, I'm going to fast, I'm going to do these things and then God will use me. You'll never, never, never obtain that place to where you can believe that, man, God's going to use you because there's always more. That's like putting a carrot on a stick, tying it to your back and hanging it out in front of you. And every time you step towards it, it moves. And that's where Christians are. Man, they're just, well, I'm doing better than I ever have, but maybe if I increased it to an hour a day of prayer, then God's going to move in my life. So you start doing an hour and you, you see some improvement, but still there's problems. And so you... Start now increasing your Bible study to an hour a day. And now you've got to do this and do that. And it's a treadmill. You're just working yourself to death. You'll never obtain. Well, this is descriptive of the average Christian's life, trying to be good enough. People come to me by the hundreds in prayer lines. And 
They come up and they're confused and they say, Brother, why hadn't God healed me? I fasted, I prayed, I've studied the Word, I'm paying my tithes, I go to church, I'm doing everything I know. What does God expect? Well, you just told me why God hadn't healed you because you never mentioned what Jesus did for you. You've mentioned what you've done for Jesus. And that is the focus of the average Christian's life. Jesus, see what I've been doing for you? Is it enough? That's the wrong foundation. God doesn't even relate to you on what you've done. If He did, you'd go to hell. Oh, now, brother, you don't understand how good I am. Again, God doesn't grade on a curve. You've either got to be perfect or you need a Savior. I mean, who wants to be the best sinner that ever went to hell? Not me. If you're going to stand before God and say, God, it's not fair. Give me what I deserve. Boy, you're asking for the wrong thing. Amen. All we need to do is plead mercy. And that's what the gospel is all about. Paul, when he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, that's what he was talking about. He says, I'm preaching that people are saved by faith, not based on their holiness. It doesn't matter if they're a harlot over here. If they're a prostitute at Ephesus, the Ephesus had over 1,100 prostitutes who were involved in temple worship. You go to the temple and have sex with the prostitute. They were all priestesses. And that's what the people in Ephesus were into. And Paul wrote about that to those people. And yet they got born again. And Paul said it didn't matter what they've been doing. If they put faith in Jesus, they can be justified. They're clean. They're holy. They're pure through what Jesus did. They can access God in spite of who they are, not because of who they were. And man, the religious people hated it. It's the religious people that crucified Jesus. It's the religious people that gave Paul a hard time. Young believers receive this gladly. They say, man, this is good news. That's what the word gospel literally means. Good news. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the good news of Christ because it's the power of God unto salvation. And the word salvation here doesn't only mean forgiveness of sins. In our religious term today, that's what we usually refer to salvation as. But salvation is an all-encompassing word used in the Bible to refer to healing, deliverance, prosperity, salvation, forgiveness of sins, all of those things. The word salvation, anything you need. If you need physical healing in your body, did you know it's the gospel? Talking about the grace of God, understanding God's grace and goodness and how He relates to you not based on your actions. It's the gospel that will release the power in your life. So if you aren't healed tonight, you may think, oh man, I need to repent of this. I need to get my act together. If I'd just pray more, if I'd fast more, if I'd study more, if I'd do this. No, what you need to do is understand the gospel. And you may need to read more to understand the gospel. You need to pray more to understand the gospel, but the reading and the praying doesn't do it. It's the understanding and putting faith in the gospel. The gospel is the power that will set you free. Understanding the grace of the Lord Jesus, how much He loves you independent of your actions, is what will set you free. It's what will produce prosperity in your life. If you need deliverance tonight, you need to understand the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then in verses 18 through 20, he begins to sum up why you don't need to tell people about all their sins. And see, this is the mentality that he was warring against that day. Everybody was the focus of of, uh, first century Christianity, making the transition from the law into grace. The focus was on sin. That's what the law was made to do. In Romans chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, that's what the purpose of the law was, was to focus sin, give you knowledge of sin, let you see yourself. 
And so the whole religious system was geared around sin. Boy, I wish I had time to stay on this one. This is awesome. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, and many other scriptures says that in the New Testament, you should have no more conscience of sin. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. There's not one out of 10,000 Christians that have ever thought that, much less walked in it. Most Christians actually believe that the more I'm aware of sin, the more I'm conscious of my sin, well, then the better off I am. The more I'll hate it and the more I'll turn from it. It's exactly opposite that. Romans chapter 7 makes that very clear. Maybe we'll get over there sooner or later, amen. In Romans chapter 5, verse 13, Paul begins to start showing you what the Old Testament law did. The Old Testament law actually is when sin started being held against you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56 says, The strength of sin is the law, the Old Testament law. The law didn't strengthen you in your battle against sin. The law strengthened sin in its battle against you. And most people think, well, man, the law, praise God for God giving us all of the commandments, the thou shalt nots. God showed me all of the things I've got to do to straighten my life up. No, that wasn't the purpose of the law. The law wasn't given so that you could keep it and by keeping it, get your life together and have God accept you more. The law was given to show you, to take away deception that, hey, you, it's impossible. You're flesh. You'll never get it together. You can't ever be perfect enough. You think you're perfect? Here's perfect. <laughs> Step one through 10,000, amen. All the things that you must do. And God gave the law to kill you. God gave the law to strengthen sin. God gave the law to make sin come alive on the inside of you and revive. To take away deception of you ever thinking that you'll be good enough so that you'd say, oh God, if this is what you demand, if this is holy in your book, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what the law was meant to do. It was meant to drive you to Jesus so that you'd cry out and say, God, have mercy on me. Sad to say, religion has taken the law and says, all right, you want the blessings of God? Do this. Well, that is what the law says. But see, it was, it was said in a way that you want the blessings of God, do this, and it was meant to make you say, oh, no, I can't do that. Nobody can keep the law. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 and 2. It, well, the whole chapter of Deuteronomy 28 gives you the blessings if you keep the Old Testament law and then the curses if you don't keep it. Verses 1 through 14 are the blessings that will come upon you if you'll keep it. And verses 15 through 68 are all the curses that will come upon you if you don't keep the law. And if you'll read Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 and 2, it says, uh, And it shall come to pass... How's that go? What are you saying, Alan? If you shall hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe and to do all the commandments which I command you this day, that all these blessings shall come upon thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken diligently to observe and to do all these commandments. Notice that it says you have to hearken diligently to observe and do all. Not most, not as many as you can. Do, do better than you did last year. It, you have to do all of them. The way it was stated, see, religion just kind of skips over that word all. And I've heard so many sermons that, man, if you want the blessings of God, what you need to do is hearken diligently. And then they start telling you, are you diligent? Have you been studying the Bible every single day? Do you pray an hour a day? 
Do you come to church the way that you should? Do you pay your tithes? And they start giving you a list of all the things that you must do. That is opposite what those scriptures are saying. That scripture says, if you want the blessings of God, you've got to be perfect. You've got to do everything, all of them. You can't miss one single thing. And the purpose of that is to make you say, oh my God, if that's what God demands, have mercy on me. That's what the law was meant to do, is drive you to grace, drive you to Jesus. And instead, we've embraced the law and think, man, it's my friend. The law was given to kill you. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9 says the law was given to condemn you, which Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says there isn't any condemnation to you when you're in Christ. The Old Testament law is a ministry of condemnation. If you're condemned, if you're feeling like, God, I love you, but I'm not sure you love me, you're under the law. If you're feeling like, God, have I done enough? Now will you heal me? You're under the law. You aren't under the gospel. Man, the gospel is what will set you free. Most people don't know what the gospel is. Most people think the gospel just refers to anything to do with religion. Not so. The gospel specifies salvation by grace. Reconciled to God through grace. Putting faith in what Jesus did for you, not faith in what you are doing for Him. And that's what Paul is talking about. And the reason you don't have to tell people that they're sinners is because everybody knows it. Verses 18 through 20 says that the creature already has an intuitive knowledge on the inside of them. Every person that has ever lived on the face of the earth already intuitively knows that they've sinned and come short of the glory of God. Even the atheists, even the people that are telling you they don't believe there's a God, they're lying. Amen. That's the truth. Some of you say, well, who are you to say that they're wrong? God's Word says that they're wrong. Amen. Brother, you can't be that absolute. That's one of the big problems in our society. Nothing's absolute anymore, not even the Bible. You might offend somebody. You might take away their rights. God's Word says that He has revealed Himself. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. That means that there isn't any ungodliness that God hasn't revealed Himself against. And unrighteousness, a man who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. That scripture makes it very clear that every person that's ever walked on the face of the earth had an intuitive knowledge of God on the inside. And they understood even His eternal power and Godhead, referring to the Trinity. There is a concept of the Trinity within mankind. When I was in Vietnam, there was a place outside of my division headquarters. It was all grown over. It was about like five or six stories tall. And it was brick and had trees growing out of the roof and out of the side. And I was always interested in that. And finally, one day I stopped and asked. And that, you know what that was? That was a temple that dated back 500 years before Christianity came to Vietnam. And it was three temples side by side, maybe a foot in between the three temples, five stories tall, and they worshiped a God that had three parts. Now, I'm not saying that that was true Christianity or true God, but it does reveal that there was this knowledge. They may have perverted it, no telling what went on. But here is the concept of a trinity 300 or 500 years before Christianity arrived in Vietnam. There's this intuitive knowledge within every person. When I was in Vietnam, I had people who were atheists make fools out of me because they brought up all these intellectual questions that I wasn't able to answer. 
had this one guy ruin a Bible study and just people got up and left laughing at me because I didn't know the answers to the things he was saying. But you know what? I just kept coming back and I saying, I don't care what you say. I don't care what I don't know. This one thing I know, God loves me and I'm born again and you need Jesus. I just kept hammering that guy. I said, I don't know the answer to your question. You know, after about 30 minutes, I was sitting in the chapel just kind of licking my wounds, thinking, God, I blew it big time. And this guy came back and started crying. And he says, I just can't understand you. My whole life is based on an argument. He says, I out-argued you. I made a fool out of you, and you still believe what you believe. And he says, you still have more peace than what I do. He says, if somebody out-argued me, I'd kill myself. He says, I want what you've got. And he, he says, he'd been telling me, see, he was an atheist. He says, I know I need God. He knew it all of the time. Man, in Vietnam, I witnessed to people who were atheists, but you know what? When the mortars started coming in, when the uh, bullets were flying, all of these atheists were crying out at the top of their lungs, God, help! Amen. There's this whole saying, there are no atheists in foxholes, and it's true. It's just a mind game when... They don't know that there's a God. The Bible says in their heart they know that there's a God. And see, Paul brought this out to tell you that, look, you don't have to convince people that they're a sinner. People know that they're a sinner. And some people are trying to deceive themselves. They're in the mind games, but in their heart. Just bypass their mind. Don't argue with the person's brain. Amen? You can't get born again intellectually. You have to get born again through your heart. Just bypass their brain. Keep speaking the word right to their heart, amen. And it'll work. Their heart knows it's true. Just talk to them and say, man, I know that you're just deceiving yourself. Quote the word to them. It's like sticking a sword in them. The Bible is a sword. Just stick it in them. It doesn't, they don't have to believe it for it to work. Now, they have to believe it for it to work positively, but it will convict them whether they believe it or not. Just stick it in there and give it a few turns, amen. It'll work. Don't talk to a person's brain. Talk to their heart. It's their heart that gets born again. So see, this is what Paul's bringing out. He says, you don't have to condemn people. It's the gospel, the good news that's going to set them free. Everybody already knows in their heart that they're a sinner. And then the last half of the first chapter, he shows you that the Old Testament people who didn't know the law, that is non-Jews, Gentiles, they had this witness of God in their heart, but they perverted it. They turned away from it. And uh, they're guilty because they denied this intuitive knowledge of God. Then he comes back in the second chapter and he says, you Jews are in context for us today. It'd be you religious people. You're guilty too because you, you not only had the intuitive knowledge, but you had the written word of God. You knew what God's standards were. And we're guilty. So what he does is show in the first chapter, the pagans are guilty because they've denied the witness that they have inside. The religious person in the second chapter is guilty because they've denied the revelation that God gave them. So he sums it all up in the third chapter to say, therefore, we're all guilty. Everybody's guilty. That's what the law was meant to do, was to bring everybody to the same place so that, you know, the religious person doesn't just need a little bit of salvation and the pagan needs a lot of salvation. Man, we all need the same amount. Everybody needs the same amount. You know, I was telling you I hadn't smoked a cigarette, said a cuss word. I was saying this in a Bible study one night, and I had a woman stand up right in the back of a Bible study, and she says, well, that doesn't make you any better than the rest of us sinners. And it was right. <laughs> that was the point I was getting at. 
I was a Pharisee, but I was headed to hell. You may have been a pagan, but you were headed to hell. There's not hell number two, hell number three. If you're going to hell, you're going to hell. I needed a Savior. And I didn't need a little bit of Savior, and you needed a lot of Savior. I needed a Savior. That's the point. The law brought everybody to the same place so that in the third chapter, he sums it all up by saying that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23. He shows you in verses 19 through 22 what the purpose of the law is. It says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. That was the purpose of the law, was to stop your mouth from making excuses. Well, God, the reason I did this, you don't understand. I was abused when I was a kid, and therefore, I just couldn't turn out to be normal. You don't understand. Uh, somebody offended me. I grew up without a dad, and so therefore I had to be homosexual because I didn't have the male role in my family, and that's what caused my sin. Man, the law was there to put the guilt right square on your shoulders and to show, make you guilty so that you couldn't blame somebody else. See, that's that Adam syndrome where he came and he says, God, it's that woman that you gave me. He passed the buck to Eve and then he tried to pass the buck to God and say, God, you're really the one that started this whole thing. Our society is doing the same thing. Man, we are masters today at blaming everybody else. Children now, you have an excuse for being a total jerk because you weren't loved the way that you were supposed to when you were a child. Wrong. Man, psychology is doing us a tremendous amount of damage. Psychology never, never, never places the blame on you. It's always somebody else. It's your environment. It's the way you were brought up. I grew up without a dad. My dad died when I was 12 years old. And as far as I know, I'm not maladjusted. Amen. Some people think I am, but I'm not. I didn't go through rebellion. I didn't have a bad time. I never felt like God failed me. I never was bitter at God. I had a great time. God blessed me. God took care of me. Whatever your problem is, you may be an alcoholic and say, but you don't understand. I came from a dysfunctional family. Well, I can show you other people that came from a dysfunctional family and didn't turn out to be an alcoholic. Some of you may have had extra pressure that I didn't have, and I'm not ignoring that, but I'm saying that you still had a choice. You can be bitter or better. You've got a choice. Every person had a choice. And ultimately, you are going to stand and give an answer before God for what you did, unless you get born again. If you get born again, praise God for Jesus. Amen. But outside of Jesus, see, every person has to bear their own sin. That's what the law brought us to. The law just took away all of our excuses, stopped our mouth so that when you stand before God, if you haven't been born again, you aren't going to say, but oh God, you don't understand the society we lived in. Your excuses are going to be over. Man, you stand before God, every mouth will be stopped and all the world will become guilty. That was the purpose of the law. It says in the next verse, verse 20, says, Therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law gave you knowledge of sin, not knowledge of salvation. And this is where most Christians are today. Most Christians experience sinners around sin and an effort to overcome sin. Sin shouldn't even be a factor in a Christian's life. Now am I saying that a Christian should never sin? Well, sure, that's the best but I can guarantee you that you will sin. It doesn't matter how holy you are, you're still going to sin. 
I may have popped somebody's bubble, but that's the truth. The Bible says in James chapter 4, verse 17, Therefore to him that does, knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. Sin is not only killing and murdering and all these things. Sin is what you should be doing and you know you should be doing it and you aren't doing it. You know you should be more sensitive to God and that you shouldn't be as carnal as you are and yet you constantly go back into carnality. You're never going to get over that. Oh, brother, I am. No, you aren't. You may get to where you can control it more, to where you walk in the Spirit more than you do now, but I guarantee you are never going to be able to jettison this flesh. You're never going to reach a state of sinless perfection. And that's what Romans chapter 7 is talking about, where he says, I, the good that I want to do, I can't do. We may get to that tomorrow if I'm blessed. Amen. But that's what he's talking about in Romans chapter 7. You never get to a place that you just are overcoming sin. Matter of fact, the Christian life is not only hard to live, it's impossible to live. It's impossible to be a Christian in the flesh. The only way you can do it is just to turn from your own self-reliance, turn from your own self, and let Jesus live through you. And when you're letting Jesus live through you, you can be sinless, and you can walk as a total victor, but nobody lets Jesus live through them every moment of every day. You get closer and closer, but the moment you're out of Jesus, you're capable of blowing it. And if you blow it big or little, it doesn't matter. Amen? This is the point that he's making. Nobody is justified by the law. The law focused your attention on sin. That's where most New Testament Christians are. But yet, that's the way the Old Testament was. New Testament Christian ought to be focused on Jesus. You ought to be so Jesus conscious, so conscious of what Jesus has done for you, so excited about your salvation. Praise God for Jesus that you wind up living holy accidentally more than you ever did on purpose before. <laughs> most Christians are trying to live holy when it's your nature to live holy, if you'd quit trying and just go to worshiping Jesus and thanking Him for what He's done and focusing on how much He loves you, holiness would flow through you as a fruit, not be a root of salvation. Some people think, well, brother, the reason you preach grace is it justifies you going and living in sin. Well, this is why Paul talked in a couple of places, two different places in the Bible, because people... He says, look, since you won't reason with me spiritual terms, he says, I'll just get down in the flesh and talk to you. I'll talk to you like a lost man. Amen. <laughs> so anybody who thinks I'm preaching grace just so that I can go live in sin, I'd compare my holiness with anybody's holiness in here. Amen. Now that's not smart. That's not good. I'm not supposed to be comparing myself, but I'm, I'm just saying this as an answer to those who say, well, see, you're preaching this so you can go live in sin. I live holier than probably any of you. There may be somebody in here that beats me, but I guarantee you it wouldn't be very many. I live a holier life than nearly anybody you've ever thought about. Amen. Some of the things that you all do normally, I wouldn't find myself, I wouldn't do for anything. So I am not preaching this so that I can go live in sin. I'm living holy, but my motive for living holy isn't to please God. It's not so that I can earn God's blessing. I do all of that through faith. Faith pleases God. And the only thing that grants me anything with God is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I live holy because, number one, it's my nature. And I've begun to hear the truth, and the truth sets me free. Not free to sin, but free from sin. I don't sin because I don't want to sin. And then, number two, sin is an inroad of Satan into your life. Romans 6, 16. 
So I don't want to give Satan inroad into my life. So I don't do it for that reason. And if I live in sin, how am I going to tell you about the power of God? I mean, being free from sin, living a holy life is one of the greatest testimonies to how God can intervene in a person's life. It's just like a testimony of healing. You tell somebody about healing and all of a sudden, man, they believe, well, maybe God can heal. Well, you show somebody freedom from sin and a victorious life where you aren't bound by habits and things and it tremendous testimony to people. So I live holy because number one, I don't want to. Number two, I don't want the devil to get inroad into my life. Number three, I use it as a testimony. But number four, I never live holy so that God will accept me. God's accepted me through Jesus. Living holy is not a requirement for a relationship with God. <laughs> That's awesome. That is awesome. It took me 20-something years to get bold enough to say that. That's the truth. That'll set you free, and that's what he's saying right here. Boy, I wish we had time to read all of this. So anyway, in the rest of the third chapter, he goes forth and just shows you that the law wasn't given for the purpose of justification. The law was given to bring you to a place of utter need in the Lord. And then he starts into the fourth chapter, and he starts drawing on Old Testament examples to verify what he was talking about. He verifies it. See, this is true, and he goes back and uses some Old Testament examples. First of all, he talks about Abraham. And see, the Old Testament Jews, they called him Abraham. That was a holy man, man. He served God, and that's the reason he was counted righteousness. And he, he went back and showed you that in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, God said that he gave Abraham righteousness because he believed, not because he did. And he shows that that was in Genesis 15. It was Genesis chapter 17 when Abraham got circumcised, which was the number one thing you had to do under the Old Testament law to be holy. And it was 13, at least 13 years, probably 14 years after God said he was already righteous. And so he makes that point right here and shows that Abraham was justified 13 years before he did what everybody was saying you had to do to be justified. He was right in the sight of God 13 years by faith before he ever did the action that everybody demanded. And then look at, boy, here's some things. Let's read chapter one, uh, chapter 4, verse 1 real quickly on down here. It says, What shall we say then that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh hath found? For if Abraham justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the Scripture? What did the scripture say? Abraham believed God, quotation from Genesis 15, 6, and it was counted unto him. Our counted means it was put on his account. It's an accounting term. It's the same word that was translated impute here in this same chapter and all these things. It's like an accounting term. You put it on the books. In other words, God wrote it in the book. Abraham's righteous. Not because he acted righteous, but because he believed righteous. Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. That's one of the most awesome statements in the Bible. To him that works not, that, means, that doesn't mean that you don't do good things, but you aren't trusting in your own efforts, your own works but believes on him that justifies the ungodly. See, religion preaches if you want to get justified, do you want God to move in your life to live godly? The Bible's saying just the opposite. God justifies the ungodly. That's the only kind he justifies. The only kind of person that can be justified is an ungodly person. 
Some of you, this is shaking your foundations. I'm glad. Brothers and sisters, we are living under a works effort, a work mentality. God, have I done enough? No, you haven't done enough. God wants you to just literally come to the end of yourself and start trusting in Jesus by faith. Only when you acknowledge that, man, I'm ungodly in my flesh. Now, there's a born-again part of me that is righteous, holy, and pure. But in my flesh, my own physical ability, I'm ungodly. Most people are, they won't admit that. A religious person will have a hard time admitting that because they say, wait a minute, brother. I've been going to church for 20 years. I've paid my tithes. I knit quilts. I bake pies. I help people when they're in the hospital. And a religious person just finds it very offensive to think that, you mean, even though I've done all of these great works, I'm not any better than this old drunk that just walked in? That's true. That's what I'm saying. I'll come to churches and I'll see the old drunk get healed. And sister so-and-so on the front row swells up like a toad, like, why did God heal them? I have the same thing. I, and I've been praying for 20 years and this drunk comes in and just gets healed off the street. Why did God do it for them? Because the drunk didn't say, God, I've been fixing pies. I've been baking cakes. I'm good. Now do it for me. The drunk just said, you mean Jesus would heal me? And we say, yeah. And he says, well, man, I'll receive that. I believe. And the drunk gets healed because he put faith in a Savior. The religious person sits there and says, oh, of course, Jesus has to be involved in this, but I've fasted and I've prayed and they're pointing to what they've done and that's the reason they don't get healed. The religious person's goodness is standing between them and God. Now, there's nothing wrong with being good. Being good has great benefit if you use it against the devil and you use it as a testimony to people. There's tremendous benefit to being good. Don't misunderstand me. If you, well, I wish I had time to put all of this into perspective. If you go out of here saying, well, Andrew Womack says we should go live like the devil. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. Matter of fact, Paul, twice in this book, in chapter 6 and, and one other time, I forgot where that is, I believe it's chapter 9, he says, what am I saying? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, he knew what the criticism was going to be against him. He knew that people listening to him were taking what he was saying and saying, should we go live in sin? Paul said, God forbid. No, that's not what I'm saying. No, that's not what I'm saying. And let me say this, that if a person doesn't preach faith in Jesus and God justifying the ungodly to such a degree that a person doesn't come up with this question, well, are you saying that I can live in sin? If you don't preach it that way, then you didn't preach grace the way that Paul preached it. Because Paul had to say this four different times. In the book of Galatians, he said it. If you don't preach grace and faith in Jesus to the point that you have to explain to people, now this doesn't mean you go live in sin, then you haven't truly preached grace. If nobody ever misunderstands you, then you haven't preached grace the way Paul preached it. That's good. Amen? Man, God justifies... The ungodly. That's the only kind God's got to justify. You'll hear people say things like, well, God doesn't work through a dirty vessel. God hadn't got any other kind of vessel to work through. Amen. Oh, well, now, brother, I'm not perfect, but... And see, here we go through the comparison again. Yet, little sins category. But there are no little sins with God. 
The truth is that in the eyes of God, compared to His standard of perfect, uh, perfection, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Even believers have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Even the ministers have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's not a one of us that can stand before God and demand anything because our acts together. And some of you may find this offensive and saying, Brother, this offends me. But it ought to set you free. Because that means Satan can't condemn me. See, Satan has never come against God and says, God's a loser. God can't do it. That's not what he's tempting you with. Satan isn't tempting you with, well, Jesus died with the apostles and doesn't do miracles anymore. Amen. That's not what the devil's tempting you with. He'll sit there, the devil will say, sure, God can do it. Sure, miracles are supposed to happen. Sure, you're supposed to walk in victory. But what the devil will do is say, but you aren't worthy. What makes you think God would do anything for you, you sorry thing? And then he'll show you a few sorry things in your life that he put there. <laughs> he'll put a thought in your mind and then come back and condemn you because you had it. <laughs> Amen. And most people get condemned and say, oh, now I know why God isn't healing me because I haven't done this yet. The truth is, see, that's not true. You've got to understand God doesn't move in your life because of your goodness and because of your holiness. Once you understand this, this, ought, this is great news. It's not great news because now I can go sin all I want to. No, that's not it. The Bible says, first, uh, John chapter 3, verse 3, every man, every man, that means mankind, every man or woman, Every person that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. If you're truly born again, you're wanting to live for God. You may be doing a piddling poor job of it, but you want to live for God. That's your desire. And when you hear the gospel, the gospel will set you free from sin, not free to sin. Any person who's listening to what I'm saying is saying, man, this is wonderful. Let's go live in sin so that grace may abound. God says, man, you need to get born again. A true born-again person isn't trying to sin. They're wanting to get out of it. And when you hear the truth, you'll live holy. You know, a friend of mine in Chicago started preaching grace like this. And people came up to him and said, Pastor, you're going to preach this. People are going to start living in sin. You're going to encourage sin. And he tried to explain to them things we're talking about. And then after a few Sundays, sure enough, here were some of the deacons and the elders standing out front, smoking their cigarette right in front of the church. And people came back and said, See, Pastor, see what you've been doing? Man, they used to never smoke there. Now they're smoking right in front of the church. And he says, Good. And they just, I can't believe you'd say that. And he says, Weren't they smoking before? And I said, well, yeah, they were smoking, but they weren't doing it in front of the church. He says, see, that's the first step in getting free. Now they're finally getting out from that feeling like they have to hide. He says, they aren't smoking any more than they used to. They're just now beginning to recognize that God loves them even if they smoke. And he says, that's a first step to getting free. Amen. But religion, see, man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Man would say, well, let's not have them smoke in the church. That's holiness. That's what man would rather go for. It doesn't matter what you do. Let's just make it look good so that we can all look good on Sundays and, 
come here and let's be religious. God knows you every moment of every day. God's looking on your heart. And I don't believe God's any more upset if you're smoking right there in the foyer of the church than if you're smoking in your, your uh, bathroom or if you're smoking in your car. doesn't matter to God. It matters to man. It'll upset a lot of religious people. But God looks on your heart. And I believe that for a person to get over the stigma and recognize that, God, you know me wherever I am, that's the first step towards deliverance. Well, what I'm saying will ruin your religion. There's some churches that preach a code of dress that I guarantee you, man, you come to church, you've got to be bleached out. You've got to look dead. They wouldn't dare put on lipstick and makeup, but they'll put on five tons of powder so that they'll look dead. <laughs> Preach, man, you can't wear any of that devil makeup. I believe if your barn needs painting, paint it. Amen. <laughs> and if it needs two coats, give it two coats. <laughs> God doesn't care about all that. But see, some people, if, as long as you come to church and dress the way they want to, you're in, man. You could be an upstanding member of the church. You can wear your bikini out here sometime, some other time, just as long as you don't wear it at church, amen. But the truth is, God sees you all of the time. And if all it is is outward lip service, you'll get man's approval. You'll be accepted by religion, but you didn't gain one lick with God. Amen or oh me. Man, God looks at the heart. God justifies the ungodly, not because He wants you to be ungodly, but because all of us are. So God will justify the people that will humble themselves and say, God, I'm guilty. Man, I'm not good enough. I'll just get it through who Jesus is. Those are the people that God moves in their life. You know, when I first got to ministering, I didn't understand the things we were talking about. I, I had some understanding, but I mean, the more you can understand this, the more you can walk in it and catch yourself beginning to go back into deception. And I was already pastoring. And I, I could preach this to a degree, but you, I'm still learning about this. I tell you, it's like gravity. It's just hard to escape. There is no role model for grace. Your employer doesn't hire you by grace. It's based on performance. Marriages aren't based on grace. They should be, but they're based on performance. Nearly everything you can contact in the world is based on performance. You don't put up, you lose it. But when it comes to God, there's no role model for it. So it seems like it just comes back in on you. It's kind of like the heat here. You turn off the air conditioner, I mean that heat just is there. <laughs> Amen. I was commenting on that in the car the other day. I mean, it's just, it's all around you. And the moment you quit walking in grace, boy, works is right there. And it's so easy to fall back into. And I was pastor in this church. And I knew some of these things, but I wasn't really walking in it. And I knew that I needed to be praying and studying the Word and doing some things. And, and I'd been so busy, occupied with other people, that I hadn't had time to open up the Word or to pray, except to pray for other people and read the Word to other people. And so I made a commitment to the Lord. I said, Father, I'm going to fast today. I'm going to pray and study the Word all day long. And I made a vow to the Lord. Well, that day I had more people come by than had ever come by before. 
I opened the Word, but only to read it to someone. I prayed, but prayed for other people all day. And I had a guy that I'd been trying to lead to the Lord come by, and he wanted to take me out to lunch. And I knew he was ready to get born again. And so I went out and ate lunch with him. Ate more than I normally would have for lunch. I broke every promise I made to God. And I was on, a, on my way to a Bible study that night, and Jamie's parents came in, so I was going by myself. 45 miles to a Bible study. And as I was driving over there, man, I was so guilt-ridden, so condemned, feeling like, God, how could you ever use me? I broke every promise I made to you. And the devil brought back to me scriptures about all liars will have their part in a lake of fire that burns forever and ever. Things like this. It's better not to make a vow than to make a vow and not pay it. And I was crying so hard I could hardly drive down the road. And I was thinking, God, what about these people? Don't let these people suffer because of my sin. I said, God, use me anyway, even though I don't deserve to be used. And finally I said, God, just do it because you love the people. In other words, if you're so upset with me that you don't love me, do it because you love the people. And then I had a great thought. This would get him for sure. And I said, God, just do it because of Jesus. (laughs) And as soon as I said that, the Lord spoke to him and he said, Who did you think I was going to do it because of? And all of a sudden, I mean, just like a light bulb went on, and I I realized I thought God was going to use me because of my holiness. I was expecting to have fasted and prayed and studied the Word all day, and man, that would have given me an extra boldness and confidence. I knew God was going to use me. And all of a sudden, it just dawned on me, man, Jesus is still the same. If I put faith in Him, the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance, Romans chapter 11. God will use me not because I deserve it, but because of Jesus and faith in Him. And man, I just believed in Jesus and had a great time. See, there's a scripture that says, agree with the adversary quickly while you're in the way. And this is a misapplication of that. I admit it's not totally accurate, but I use that scripture on the devil. When he comes to me and he says, you sorry thing, what makes you think God would use you? I used to get in and say, but wait a minute. I fasted. I'm doing better. I'm seeking God more. I've tried harder. The moment you start doing that, you just lost. Because regardless of how far your good works go, they'll never go far enough, and Satan is going to eventually be able to condemn you over something. So now, instead of fighting him and trying to justify myself, I just agree with my adversary quickly while I'm in the way. He says, you jerk, what makes you think God would use you? And I say, guilty. (laughs) Praise God for Jesus. I think I'll just tell him about Jesus. I won't even tell him what I did today. I won't even tell you how holy I am. I won't even tell you anything about me. I'll tell you about Jesus and I'll pray for you in the name of Jesus. And I'll get it through who Jesus is, not through who I am. And man, there's freedom in that. Tremendous freedom. Amen? Well, I used to have to think I had to go pray and shut myself up for days or hours to earn the anointing of God. I used to come into a church service and agree with the pastor. Didn't even agree with the pastor before the service tonight. But I used to have to pray and, oh God, I ask you to anoint me because I thought it came and went according to how good I was. The Bible says the anointing which you have received of him abides within you and you need not that any man teach you. He that hath anointed us and hath sealed us is God. God gave me an anointing not because I deserved it, not because I earned it. It was a gift. It's a gift. And all I got to do is to believe, to activate it. And man, I don't get in here and ask God to anoint me. See, I'm starting from a position of unbelief. If you have to ask God to anoint you, then that means at the moment you aren't anointed, which the Bible says you are. It abides within you. 
So I quit asking God for something that I've already got. <laughs> I just go in and I say, thank you, Father. Luke 4.18, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And I just remind myself of what God's Word says. Father, I am anointed. Man, now I can preach at the drop of a hat and drop my hat to get to preach. I can talk to you anytime. I don't have to psych myself up. I don't have to get into some mental state to where the anointing's on me. I can share with you. It doesn't matter if you're out there in the car a lot. I can talk to you exactly the same as I'm talking right now. I can have the same power and anointing flowing. Amen? It's a gift. Satan can't condemn me. Have you prayed enough? Have you fasted enough? No, I never have. I never will. Amen? I just get it for who Jesus is. Somebody says, so you just goof off all the time. No, that's not what I do either. Because even though God's gift would be the same, my faith wouldn't be the same if I'm not into the Word building myself up. Holiness does affect you. It affects you, not God. Holiness makes you more sensitive to God. It doesn't make God more sensitive to you. Holiness will make you love God more. It doesn't make God love you more. Studying the Word doesn't make God more impressed with you, but it will impress you with God the more you study the Word. Coming to church is good for you. Why? Because you aren't going to hear the things I'm saying sitting at home watching the booth too. Coming to church is great for you. It's tremendous. But if you never came to church again, God would love you the same. Your church attendance does not affect the way God views you or loves you or fellowships with you. God loves you just the same if you never come to church, but you'd be stupid not to do it. But God loves you, stupid. <laughs> God will love you just the same, but you never enjoy it because you won't know it. You'll be out there listening as the stomach turns and watching people murder and rape and do all this kind of stuff, and it'll be, it'll be hardening your heart towards God and causing grief and sorrow on the inside of you, and then you wonder, where's God? He's still on the inside of you. He still loves you. It's just your heart that's become hardened. That's what this whole series, Hardness of Heart, is about. Hardness of heart, it comes as a result of sin and as a result of not seeking God the way you should. It hardens your heart towards God, but it doesn't harden God's heart towards you. Sin doesn't harden God's heart towards you. It hardens your heart towards God. Well, that's good news. That's wonderful news. I'm getting bogged down. I'm not going very far, but that's good stuff. Amen. God justifies the ungodly. That's the only kind he's got to justify. And only if you'll admit that, God, I'm not standing before you because I deserve it. I'm standing before you because of Jesus. That's the only time you're going to find the power of God moving in your life. The very thing that's keeping some of you from receiving the power of God isn't your goodness, but it's the fact that your faith is in your goodness. There's nothing wrong with being good. There's nothing wrong with being holy. It's better than being unholy. But if your faith is in what you're doing, then you can't receive from God because God only justifies the ungodly. God can only move for people who admit that, God, it's not my righteousness. It's not my goodness. It's not my holiness. And sad to say, religion has somehow or another perverted this and turned it around to where people today are trusting in themselves and trusting in their goodness and offering their goodness up before God to say, God, do you see what I've done? Now will you move in my life? And it'll never work. It'll never work. 
There was a man named David Brainerd who was an American missionary to the Indians in the 1800s. And this man was brought up in a Puritan home, which if any of you know anything about the Puritan background, they preached a standard of holiness and, and uh, doing all of these things much stronger than what holiness is preached in religion in America today. So anyway, he came up under this knowledge that salvation existed, but he thought you had to do all of these things to get God to save you. And when he was a young man, he knew he didn't have the peace and the joy that the scripture promised would come as a result of salvation. So he just in honesty started seeking God. And for two years, he sought God day and night to gain the peace of his salvation, the assurance that he was born again. And he fasted 40 days at a time, a number of times throughout that two years. He read the Bible through multiple times over. He just consumed it day and night. He prayed all night long, many, many, many different times, doing all of these things, trying to get God to save him. And yet he couldn't get this peace in his heart that he was born again. And finally, after two years of this, he was so frustrated that he was walking through the woods one day and he just said, God, I can't stand it another moment. I'd rather die and go to hell right now and get it over with than to live one more minute in this torment. And so he said, God, just let the earth open up and swallow me alive into hell. And he had a vision. Of course, he didn't know this was a vision until after it was over. He thought it was real. But he, the earth all of a sudden opened up and he started falling into hell. And he could see the flames of hell, feel the heat from it, smell the smoke. He was falling into hell. He tried to grab along the sides of this cliff and nothing. He couldn't grab hold of anything. And I mean, it was all over. And in desperation, he just screamed at the top of his lungs and said, Jesus, save me. And as soon as he said it, he found himself laying on the, on the ground in the forest and just love and joy and peace. All of these things he'd been seeking for two years flowed through him. Man, he knew that he knew that he knew that he was born again. And he started praising God, but then he got confused and he said, God, why now? Why like this? Why did you save me now? And you know what the Lord spoke to him? He said, it's the first time you asked me to do it. He was trying to save himself through his goodness. And we look at that and think, how silly. Because see, the initial born-again experience has been preached to us as a work of grace. And all you've got to do is put faith in it. But then, after you get born again, most of us really do believe that God is going to move in our life through us. We become our own Savior. That's the reason that it's harder to be healed than it was to be saved. If you were to put things on a scale, a, a godly scale with God's perspective, it actually takes less faith to be, have somebody raised from the dead than it does to have somebody born again. Being born again is the greatest miracle you'll ever experience. I mean, if you stop and think about it, what had you done to deserve it? Some of you were adulterers. Some of you were murderers, thieves. You were liars. You were in all kinds of problems, adulterers, and all, all of this stuff. You were living a sorry life. You hadn't been paying your tithes, reading the Word, going to church. And yet here you were at your worst, and all you did was say, I make Jesus Christ my Lord and believe in my heart. God raised Him from the dead. And you received the greatest miracle that could ever happen. Why, you were a total pagan. But now that you're born again... You just get angry with your wife on the way to church and God's liable to let you die of cancer because you got sin in your life. You didn't read your daily Bible readings this week. 
you're liable to go to hell. That's stupid. That's not walking by the same rule. See, it's actually easier. I've seen people raised from the dead. And it's actually easier to see people raised from the dead than it is to see a person born again. Because you are now a child of God. You've got, you've got an experience. I mean, God Himself lives on the inside of you. You've got all of the promises. You've been renewing your mind. It ought to be easier for you to walk in the supernatural power of God now than it was to get born again. But the reason it's not that way with most people is because they aren't using their faith the same way. When they came for salvation, they had a Savior. And if I would have come up to a person trying to pray for salvation and say, you sorry thing, you're an adulterer. What makes you think God would save you? If you really heard the gospel, that wouldn't keep you from getting born again. You'd say, man, that's the reason I need Jesus. I am an adulterer. You would admit it. You'd humble yourself and you'd put faith in a Savior and you'd go ahead and receive this gift of salvation. But if you're a Christian and you come forward, and if I had a word of knowledge and says, you're in strife, most of you would say, well, now I know why God's not healing me. And until you get everything worked out, until you measure up again, you wouldn't even release your faith. Because, see, you aren't going through a Savior. The reason you get born again so easy is because you had 100% faith in a Savior, no faith in yourself. But now that you're born again, we've fallen under a deception of thinking, God, see what I've done? When you start out, we preach that you have to be 100% dependent upon a Savior. But the average person's idea of maturity is that now I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian for 20 years. I ought to be able to believe for this on my own. I ought to, and actually, we develop a mentality that the stronger you get in the Lord, the more you ought to be able to do on your own. You shouldn't be as dependent on God as you were when you first got saved. I mean, now you need to get some things through your own maturity. The truth is, a mature Christian becomes even more dependent upon God. To where, God, I can't do anything. God, I can't heal a that. I can't believe for anything. It's got to be Jesus in my life. That's a true sign of maturity. Amen? Boy, you change your thinking around like this and you begin to start putting your faith back in a Savior and, and understanding the gospel, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, Satan won't be able to condemn you. Amen? He, those darts will come at you and the grace of God will just... Everyone will deflect. He can't stick anything in me. You can accuse me, shoot your worst shot. Doesn't matter what you think about me. God sees me through the Spirit. God loves me through who I am in Christ Jesus. God's pleased with me, Ephesians 1, 6. I'm accepted in the beloved. God accepts me. God's pleased with me. He's as pleased with me as He is Jesus. Amen. If you'll put your faith in Jesus tonight, it doesn't matter how sorry you are. God will heal you anyway. God will love you anyway. God will set you free. And as you experience that life, it'll just push sin out of your life. Sin will fall from you. Holiness is a fruit, not a root of salvation. That's good news, isn't it? Praise God. Let's pray. We hope that your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. Remember, Andrew Womack Ministries operates a helpline that you can call for prayer and information at 719-635-1111. We have a ministry website at www.awmi.net and you can write the ministry at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs 80934. 
Until next time, we pray that you will reach out by faith and receive everything that is yours through God's grace.